Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trapped Offside podcast. I'm Safanda here and alongside me as usual is Abdurrahman Khalifa. Abdurrahman, how are you? Very well, very well. It's uh, super sunny outside and we're here indoors, so <laughs> for once it's actually a good thing. I'm not too sure about that. I quite enjoy the sun. You see, I'm uh, perfectly English. I love the rain and the cold. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not a huge fan. Well, it would be nice weather to go outside anyway, to go and uh, watch a football match, perhaps. Or, you know, I could uh, turn into surgery and violate lockdown for the time and get a haircut. Did you hear about that? <laughs> I did not know what happened. <laughs> uh, well, has already violated lockdown twice and he went and decided it would be a good idea to go get a trim. He said he's, he's struggling without his gym, so he went and got one anyway. Some people don't really learn about the lockdown rules, do they? No, not at all. But it is affecting quite a few players these days because football is finally starting to come back. And, of course, the biggest story this week comes from South Korea, where FC Seoul publicly apologized for accidentally using sex dolls instead of fashion <laughs> mannequins to fill up their stadium. But Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but um, seriously, the Bundesliga is back. A top five league coming back. That's huge news. Did you manage to catch any of the games? Yeah, I did. So I managed to obviously catch the derby. Schalke against Dortmund, that was, quite frankly, it felt a bit like a, a pre-season game. Everyone was, was out of shape, they were, they were gassed, but one thing was still common, that was Erlen Braut Haaland scoring again. Yeah, it was. Um, it's interesting you say it felt like a pre-season game, because for me, the way I honestly looked at it was, for Schalke, it Look like a preseason game for Dortmund. It looked like maybe their first game of the season where they were a bit rusty, but they were still getting into rhythm. Um, Schalke, though, they, they looked completely out of it. And you could see that maybe this corona hasn't had the same impact on everyone. But, of course, there's more detail into that. Um, yeah. there, there is an injury in that match as well. Perhaps a, a sign of things to come when football's being slightly rushed. Yeah, yeah. But hey, at least we did manage to get to see 10 minutes of Jaden Sancho. <laughs> yeah, always great to see him play. Very enjoyable player. Um, just like you said, Haaland as well, though. He is phenomenal, even at that age. Just very, very comfortable scoring goals all the time and uh, Dortmund have two very very great players in him and Sancho yeah but uh, I'd like to talk about and it's interesting to see what happens with him in the summer but Ashraf Hakimi he's had yet another brilliant game uh, although Guerrero did score twice and you know to the naked eye people would have thought hey he, he was the better wing back that day Hakimi and his positioning, even defensively now, he's, he's, he's really improved. And I'm excited to see, obviously, what Madrid 
end up doing with them, whether like they recall him or whether they sell him on to Dortmund for a big fee. God knows, but he, he is one hell of a player. He is. Um, I think the way he's performing, he would think Madrid have to be mad to be thinking of selling him rather than bringing him into the team and having him compete for a place in the team. Absolutely. Yeah. But no uh, doubt the uh, the biggest surprise of the weekend was uh, was on Sunday and how Bayern Munich didn't absolutely batter you in Dortmund. Yeah. Give us the most uh, your highlight of the weekend then from from that bit, from those games from what you saw. I'd say that finish by Guerrero. I genuinely have no clue whether he meant it or not because to do that. If you if you genuinely meant it, then to do that, that just takes balls of steel, you know. The the, the commentator that I was watching it on BT, um, he said he probably thought he was offside and just said, you know, let me just have a go. And then it turns out he wasn't in the goal case given. I, I I'm genuinely don't know either way, but I was just amazed at that finish. Yeah, I mean... What one thing is is certain now, and I'm really happy about it, is more people now are going to realise talents outside of Sancho and 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 Haaland. Uh, in particular, for me, I, I want to take a particular look at at Dilorosan from from Hertha Berlin and uh, Rashica from from Werder Bremen. Obviously, Bremen got battered over the weekend, but he he's someone that is out of contract in the summer and could be headed to the Premier League. And I think whoever ends up signing him, he's he's one hell of a player. He's got a goal contribution at every 150 minutes or so. He's got what, seven goals, four assists in, in 20 games. And he's someone that not only has a spark, but he actually has end product as well. So I think whatever team signs him, um, you know, they're, they're going to be extremely lucky. I have on good authority that a top six team is in for him um, and they're looking to sign him. So I think he's one player that, that could be good uh, going forward. Uh, Leipzig, people have started realising just how good of a player that Nkunku and Diaby are. I don't know what PSG were thinking, letting both go. But, I mean, they let Diaby go for free, didn't they? I think they did. And Nkunku, they sold for about 10 million. And both of them have been absolutely extraordinary just in, in terms of how much they're contributing. I think I saw a stat the other day that they're contributing to 50, 50% or so of their team's goals. So, yeah, it, it, it's quite yeah. crazy. It's a, it's a bit disappointing watching him play because he was very, very strongly linked with Arsenal, um, especially when Emery was still there. <laughs> Uh, funny you say Emery. I mean, he's he's been complaining in the press about uh, not being backed and not being supported, and how he didn't uh, feel protected. He felt very alone. But <laughs> maybe maybe that that was one of the reasons why. Maybe he wanted to sign in Kunku and wasn't backed. Yeah, uh, I think it probably was. There were a few players that he wanted to sign, but he wasn't backed. Um, one example was. Reportedly, he was always after Zaha from Palace, and then Arsenal chose to sign Pepe instead. Uh, a few more examples like that. So, I, I I guess I could see where he's coming from, where 
Arsenal sort of didn't completely trust them, but I think that should or probably was made clear to him because it was pretty clear to us fans from even before Emery got hired that after Arsene Wenger left, Arsenal were transitioning from a team where the manager had all of this power to having a whole setup in place. So you have a director of football, you have a head scout, well, they did at the time, um, Sven Mislinta, and then you've yeah. got Raul, and and you have all these people in charge of everything else, and then you're bringing in a sort of a coach to just set the tactics and, and deal with the team on the day, uh, rather than be involved that much in transfers, so... I do feel for Emery, he seems like a nice person and you can't really hate someone for not performing as well as they perhaps should have. But I I, I just, I feel that he's glossing over everything that went wrong tactically. The fact that, you know, the, the first half of the season he came in, for example, he's constantly making changes at the halftime. And at the beginning, that was very good to see you know somebody that's seeing what he's going wrong in the middle of the match and adapting but then it happens 20 games in a row and then you're thinking okay maybe if he's having to change it this many times then that means he's not getting it right from the first place there was the collapse at the end of the season after which personally I thought he definitely had to go but Arsenal kept him on Arsenal gave him a long time after that even during the next season, when it was becoming very, very clear that Emery is done, they still gave him more time, and eventually, you know, he got sacked. I, I think it's unfortunate, but I think the majority of that blame can only lie with uh, Unai Emery. And I'm really, really hopeful that Mikel Arteta and Arsenal under Mikel Arteta will do much better. Absolutely. I mean, not as a United fan, but in general, looking at, at Arsenal and how they play, and th- there seems to be for the first time in, in years a system in place, a philosophy in, in, in place, and players that have bought into the vision. I, I think since, since day one, uh, with Emery coming in, there, there was people that had their doubts, um, and he wasn't backed uh, by all the players. So there is that. Um, but on another note, Kai Havertz just got by Leverkusen another 20 million or so, uh, with his performance over the weekend as well. Uh, he, he, he scored twice. He had five shots on goal, created three chances, and he, he was far and away the best player on the pitch. Now, with more people watching at the Bundesliga, there's more hype. Uh, at least for the next couple of weeks, I, I can see another 10, 15, 20 million being added to, to his price track after that performance. He, he is quite a special player, and, and to be honest, there's only going to be a select few teams in the world that are going to be able to afford to buy him, um, especially with the current situation now. And There's been talks about Real Madrid, Barcelona potentially curbing their spending this summer because of TV rights. Uh, I know that Barcelona is going to miss out on what, 300 million euros just by missed games if they don't continue their campaign. So yeah, it, it could be could be something. Uh, speaking of 
people losing significant amount significant amounts of money. League Two decided to cancel their season. Um, well, not cancel, but just end it at that. Um, they've relegated uh, teams and they haven't promoted anyone yet, as it stands. Now, whether they want to go for um, the average points or whether they want to go for, you know, it, it, an end of season straight away kind of thing, but that's it for League Two, it's season over. League One is a bit more of a uh, an ongoing problem. They've had three, quote-unquote, final meetings and they've been locked at a stalemate at 12-12. Um, there's no tiebreaker as it stands and they're still locked in. So just to give you some context, uh, several League One clubs, they've taken a, a stance that there's going to be no further games and they want it to be uh, decided by a formula, which is essentially a weighted home away formula. So depending on your results at home and your results away, you get a certain percentage. Um, there's six big clubs that are opposed, I'd say, to, to this, including Sunderland and Ipswich. Um, they remain committed to completing the season in the right way. Um, they, they want the season to be decided, obviously, on the pitch, not, not like in a, in a, in a courtroom. And, you know, it's funny that Ipswich and Sunderland are, are complaining about it, considering both of them probably won't go up uh, to the championship, but they do believe that, you know, they have a duty to, to, to complete the season. Um, and it's interesting to see because for, for the first time, we're not sure about what's going to, what's going to happen long term, uh, with, with the league. It's still been a lock on for a while and, It'll be interesting to see, and because it's obviously the EFL, uh, the championship indirectly is uh, going to be impacted by that as well. Because if they yep. void the season, promotion, relegation, then there's going to be promotion, relegation in the championship. Um, and then you, you, look, nobody's going to win, obviously. Uh, it's going to be a bit of an issue, uh, no matter what they do. Um, but that being said, uh, I, I do think that League One will end up continuing the season. I just don't don't see it happening. Them them cancelling it. Um, yeah. I think I think obviously, and I know for a fact that that Norwich, for example, they they've been saying that this this also impacts the Premier League. Um, if there's not going to be any promotion uh, in the Championship, he doesn't want any relegation as well. Um, there's going to be an overall impact of the whole thing. Um, the League One teams are actually deliberating a wage cap um, to help navigate the waters. So it's going to be a wage cap for the whole year. Um, so it'll be a £2.5 million ceiling for salaries. Um, and for the fourth division, it would be £1.25 million. How how do you feel about salary cuts and you know football at least taking this temporary quote unquote sacrifice and should it be the players that are making that sacrifice or should it be the rich owners that that should be doing that? In a way, I I think I understand the logic behind a salary cap 
because the the coronavirus, the situation, it's an unprecedented situation. The clubs are being hit financially. And would you rather have a salary cap or would you rather have club clubs starting to go down under? I think most people would give a preference to the salary the salary caps, but I think where there has to be a bit of debate is is the money saved actually going to be reinvested into the clubs? Because a lot of clubs just have very rich owners and the profits might just end up going to them. So billionaire owners versus multi-millionaire players and the players are the real sort of people that the fans pay to see. So maybe it is a good thing that they, they earn as much as they do would you rather give the extra money to them or would you rather give it to the owners? I think a lot of people would probably say they'd rather give it to the players in that case. So I think it's a bit of a difficult situation to say because for where it's being implemented, the league, the lower leagues, League 1, League 2, um, I don't think sort of financial doping that you sort of see in the bigger, the city-owned team, the, the Emirates-owned teams, the Qatar-owned teams, I don't think you see that as much in the lower leagues. So, you know, you can understand why they're trying to introduce it, especially during this pandemic. How about you? It's a bit of an interesting one because I'm, I'm going to even look at it from the Premier League on, uh, downwards because I, I see that it could be suggested uh, at least for a year to, to help and save. Uh, UEFA usually recommends that a club doesn't pay more than 70% of its uh, income and wages. Um, funny enough, last year, nine teams were over that 70% figure. Um, you'd think that the big six would potentially be paying a lot um, and that percentage would be high, but quite frankly, all of the top six are, are below that that threshold and significantly as well. Um, we Premier League, although this season could be fine, next season, if again, we're not going to have fans, then they could be in trouble. And I think that's why I think they have to do something about it. Yeah. And while I'm definitely in agreement that players should get every single penny of, because they're the commodity, end of the day, people don't go and watch the club. Well, they do watch the club, but without the players, there is no club. Um, so they, they do deserve every single penny that they get paid, especially now since it's not, it's not a zero risk game at the moment and it won't be a zero risk game for a while. So they're, they're sticking everything on the line that their partners, their children, if they have children. I know for a fact that Troy Deeney's, he, he's not going to training because he has a five five month old kid with with breathing problems um so they're obviously sacrificing as well and i, I don't think yeah. that you know they, they should sacrifice it however if it's going to be um if it's going to be problematic for these clubs going forward uh with the finances then they, they're going to have to try find a way to, to renegotiate it whether that's through, I don't know, unlikely bonuses or rejig a contract in a way. Um, but the more alarming thing is this championship downwards. So in, in the last five seasons, second division clubs, they 
gotten 2.2 million in parachute payments. <laughs> the salaries in that period, 3.3 million. So it's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. Um, um, what do you think the financial implications of closing the season um, is for the League 2 teams? Oh, it's massive because 85% of their revenue is from match day income, so ticket sales, uh, shirt sales, whatnot. And when that's taken away, you know, they're, they're really going to struggle because they obviously have salaries to pay for. And quite frankly, the set, set League Two is, although it's the fourth tier of English football, it pays more than the second division in France and Germany. Uh, that, wow. So that's, that's some context into it. Um, when looking at teams in League Two, um, they spend 95% of their income on salaries, which is ridiculous. And in the case of Blackburn, Charlton, Wigan, Scunthorpe, they're above 100%. The owners are paying out of their pockets to make sure that they put yeah. a team capable of going up. But when yeah. there's no income coming in, then those those teams are going to be in doubt, and you're going to see more teams default that like Berry. Um, yeah, Bolton got very lucky, but Bolton's going to go down to League Two next season um, if they if they end the season right now because they're what twenty second, twenty third in League One. Um, yeah, uh, but, I think they're last. So then, I I think there's just to wrap this up. I think there's going to be two different types of wage cap that that can be implemented. And obviously, you watch the NBA. I don't know how much you know about the salary cap system there, but there's something called a hard cap. So you're given a maximum total wage bill um, to spend on players, whether that's, you know, whether you want to spend it on one player, whether you want to spend it on 25 players, that's entirely up to you. Um, But you can't exceed that cap. If you do, then there's penalties um, and you won't be able to sign the player. Uh, obviously, it, it would be good for competitive balance, at least in, in, in the short run. Um, but I don't think it's uh, going to be accepted by clubs with big financial muscle. So the likes of the Ipswiches and the Sunderlands in League One, uh, they're not going to accept that anytime soon. Uh, the alternative is a potential soft cap um, where your wage bill is essentially a percentage of the income um, the MLS have something similar to that. Um, so you can have a designated player, a bit like the MLS, they say, have one or two players. Uh, you can pay them outside of the salary cap. So uh, Zatan, yeah. Rooney, they were paid six, seven, eight million. Um, but then everyone else has a minimum wage, which is, uh, say, 1.25, 2 million in the MLS, depending on years' experience. Um, yeah. At least in the short term, they need to explore that those options. Even though I don't, as an agent, I wouldn't want my players earning less. Um, but for the sake of football and the future of football and for the future of clubs, ultimately, if you're an agent or if you're a player, <laughs> each co- each club that folds is one less option for you. Uh, yeah. That's not even factoring in the heritage and and. The history and, and the fans, so there is that. Um, 
the only the only the only thing I have in terms of the salary cap is I don't see it working in the championship um, because the disparity that you have between clubs because of parachute payments um, that's going to cause a lot more of a yo-yo thing. I know West Brom a while back reviewed as the yo-yo club. They they'd be too good for the championship, but then terrible for the Premier League, and they'd be going up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, and even if rules are implemented, that I, I imagine that clubs are going to be looking for for loopholes, um, because obviously you know that owners can sometimes be impatient and they want to spend their money on on players ASAP to go up and make more money. Um, it, it, it's 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 weird. It's weird to be honest because I don't know if you heard a while back. Um, with Tom Ince, um, Derby wanted to pay less on the books. So what they did was um, paid his mum uh, $700,000 uh, for scouting services. Uh, that way their wage bill didn't go up and they could pay him outside, essentially. Um, now, they were pulled up in court at the time. Um, and they, they, they had to give that back. Uh, they denied obviously any wrongdoing to start off with, but yeah, that that was paid back because it was a breach of financial duty. So it'd be interesting to see how many people are going to try and circumvent that cap, um, what they actually do. But I thought I'd give you a little bit of insight into how I think it might work or might not work. Are we just looking at an in- inevitable fall of a lot of great clubs? Because as you mentioned earlier in, about in the lower division, the clubs rely on up to 85% of their income um, coming yeah. from match day revenue. So with this season being cancelled and then the next season, even then, we're not quite sure when fans are actually going to be able to come back and watch the games. So if you don't have that income stream coming in even next season, then... I, I don't think many small clubs will have enough in their reserves to be able to hold them over till a point comes where fans can actually start to come to watch the games. So how do you think teams can counter this? Because obviously it's not going to go away and chances are COVID will be back next year. Uh, and it, before a vaccine even, you're always going to be looking over your shoulder. So what do you think clubs should go should should do going forward at least for this year and next year a team pass i think what they could do is essentially start getting all the matches to be broadcasted and then the fans of a certain team can you know pay a annual or seasonal subscription to watch all of those matches and you could if you price that reasonably enough you might even get more people watching than there were attending your games? It's interesting you, you, you say it past because obviously the NBA is, is, is a global sport and one of their key successes has been the league pass. So the league pass essentially allows you to either choose a one team pass, which is just for your team, or an overall league, which obviously costs more money, but you get to see all the games. And I think... Obviously, that way, anyone that's actually a fan of the team, uh, yes, it's not going to be as expensive as a season ticket and 
you're obviously going to miss out on say the, the merchandise and the kits and whatnot but it is a very interesting suggestion yeah and of course they're they're also gonna save up on a lot of costs that they would have when you know fans are coming in attendance they won't have to pay those costs um but also, I think it, it it's a lot uh, more accessible for fans. I think the, the main issue, though, is a lot of people view going to watch their local team as a sort of time pass um, because there is, of course, the 3 p.m. blackout in England. So if you have big games going on at the same time, will people actually tune in to watch their team play? Uh, on TV if it's a choice between them or a big team and I think that's where you might see the bigger clubs taking away fans from the smaller clubs. Yeah, I mean that, that is a, that's an increasing possibility but I think there's a potential now that the EFL definitely could monetize this um, obviously League 1, League 2 clubs, yes, you, you want match going fans um, and I, I suppose it's the balance between providing all games so that in the end stadiums are empty or providing some games and ensuring that fans still go. So that's that's obviously one thing. If you're a fan of, say, Plymouth Argyle, which are in the southwest of England, and you have a game up north against, uh, I don't know, Accrington, uh, that's, that's going to be, what, a 500, 600-mile journey round. And yeah. if you can watch it from a TV how many people are actually going to go um, in the future. Um, but then again, the advantage of that would be that you have a set income coming in every single year uh, that you know of and you know how many people are going to go. And then your match going fans, you're obviously still going to have match going fans. So I'll be interested to see what they do with it. But I do think that there's potential to monetize it. Yeah. Um, the flip side to... How many people would go to an away game that far is the if not too many people were going in the first place, a lot more of them might be more inclined to turn on their TV and watch the match. That's true. Yeah. Um actually as well, on the topic of salary caps, uh the head of uh the DFB, the German Football Association, uh Fritz Keller, he he's proposing salary cap at least just for one year. Just help make football more sustainable. Obviously, yes, that Bundesliga pays its salaries less. I mean, the second division of the Bundesliga only pays its, its players and salary three to four thousand a month. Um, that's League Two money. Um, but that being said, as well, that he, he's he's considering it as well. And I think you know, year a year around, maybe three transfer windows uh, is one thing, and then capping salaries and transfer fees at least for a year or two is another thing. Maybe that way, in a sense, it might be good. It might bring some normality back into football because the last couple of years, uh, whether that's salaries, whether that's transfers, they've been astronomical. I don't know whether that's the Neymar deal or inflation, but since then, um, there's been some crazy salaries. Yeah. I think it could have... A very interesting effect on how teams are going to look like in the future as well. Because, of course, every team is going to be hit by a salary cap if it is introduced. But if a team is currently paying a lower salary to its players right now, 
you could see they might be able to make a space for a star player and a star player might uh, choose to move to a team that's worse off but that can pay him as much just for the money yeah that is a possibility but i think it, it's going to change the way teams recruit um the teams that have players over 30 more and more people now are going to be looking at sell-on value and how much can we recoup if we decide to sell as you know as soon as you turn the magical 3-0 uh, your transfer value plummets um, because you're viewed yeah. as if you, you don't have any more sell-on value so it's interesting to see uh, going forward how much more emphasis is going to be on scouting on analysis um, and it's funny actually because people that produce scout reports although they have uh, Y Scout and Instat they're the two main softwares really um, a lot of them use numbers uh, to supplement a player's style or strength when you're using numbers in, in my opinion and obviously the, the proof is when we identify players with our agency or potential candidates for a role, there we always get the reaction of, okay, how much does this guy want? How much does this guy cost? Um, anyone that has to use numbers in, in describing a player style has, what, 70, 80% most likely not seen enough of the player to actually make a certain view. Um, data is a good indicator of of performance, but it's not the be all end all. And I think more teams now are actually going to watch footage rather than look at numbers. You'd, you'd be amazed at how many people would say, "Send me the transfer mark link, send me a Y scout link, send me the instat link, and we'll take a look." And they don't view the footage per se; they'd all only look at the numbers. Um, while numbers are fine, you know, obviously it's, it's good to, to help supplement an, article, uh, an argument. I think more teams are actually going to look at players, uh, more teams are going to watch games, and more pe- more teams are going to unearth bargains early on, which means maybe the League R teams, uh, the fr- especially the Bundesliga teams that sign players from League R for cheap and then end up selling them to... Premier League for astronomical amounts of money, case in point, Sebastian Haller. Uh, they're going to start. They're going to start looking more at those leagues and contemplating whether to, to go for a player early on, even if, if it means training them for an extra year or two and molding them into, you know, the player that they should be. Yeah, just on the usage of statistics, I think they can be an exceptional tool in analysing players and whether something is sustainable. I think the biggest example that I can perhaps give that most people will be able to, to, to agree with was uh, Arsenal under Unai Emery when they went on a 22 unbeaten streak and there was a lot of talk of, you know, okay, Arsenal are doing very well under Unai Emery, but any, anyone that was paying attention to the stats the expected goals, for example, it, it was very clear that this wasn't going to be sustainable in the long run and either the performances had to catch up with the results or the results were going to catch up with the performances. And it, it's always 
always more likely that the results are going to fall down or go up in line with how you're performing. And that's exactly what happened. Arsenal were performing very poorly and the stats were showing that. And eventually we went from a 22 un- unbeaten run to to having very poor results that, that were in line with our performances. I also think a lot of clubs, especially the bigger clubs, are looking into more advanced statistics and metrics that are not available sort of publicly. Arsenal, for example, has invested a lot of money into stat DNA and stat DNA has a lot of data that most other other uh, data providers, for example, Opta, do not provide. They're very secretive, actually. I remember reading a New York Times article about it and they mentioned that they contacted Stat DNA, and Stat DNA just simply did not uh, respond because yeah, yeah, they they they're very secretive about what they do. But but one one example of a measure at Arsenal, for example, was they sort of assess how frequently um, defenders make errors. So, for example, a defender failing to spot an opponent running past them or losing a one-on-one duel, that's something that stat DNA measures. It's not as uh, publicly available. So, yeah. so, so a lot of people, when they're sort of on Twitter, you know, comparing players, they're going into very, very basic stats. Um, yeah. But clubs, they, they look beyond that. However, there is, of course, the case that even people uh, that are in charge of the stats and giving you statistical analysis, they can get things wrong. Uh, One of the bigger examples of that was Antoine Griezmann at Arsenal. Um, Arsene Wenger was a big fan. Stat DNA looked at his numbers and said... Do you know what? The numbers aren't overly impressive. Um, of course, maybe not in his current Barcelona form. It hasn't. He hasn't been performing as well. But this was back when he was at Real Sociedad, and then he went to Atletico Madrid, and he had an exceptional time there and for France in the national team. So, so it it looks like uh, they've got that one wrong. But there, of course, um, I think it's. It's also one of those things like when people are talking about zonal marking and man marking in a match, whenever there's an issue of man marking, people will say, oh, that player messed up over there. He should have been keeping track of his man. But then in zonal marking, when a player messes up, the commentators almost always just blame the system of zonal marking rather than looking at the fact that maybe it was the player that failed, not the system. So uh, I I think a lot of that goes into this as well, where, for example, when a player lets, when a team lets go of a player that they shouldn't have let go of or they pass on signing a player that they really should have signed and that, that comes down to... The, the manager and the scouts that actually saw him play, then people will blame that scout or that manager himself. 
But when it comes to someone giving a statistical analysis, for example, at Arsenal, there is obviously someone or a team in charge of looking at those numbers rather than blaming those certain individuals we we see a lot of people that just directly blame that DNA or the use of statistics itself um, for missing out on certain targets or signing the wrong players. Yeah, obviously, funny you say that because I I I obviously know this and I have it on good authority. United uh, United are very behind in terms of analysis and data and how they use data to to hire uh, to sign players. So at the moment, all their transfers, all their signings are done by Woodward and uh, Matt Judge. And when we want to do any major signing, it's them to, uh, even though United have the biggest scouting network in, in world football, but clearly they're not uh, using the the data and the information that they're given. Uh, you obviously have uh, many different stories about how they've identified the Ligt and Jaden Sancho and, and Mbappe when he was at Monaco and they decided to go for Martial instead. Yeah. So th- there's, there, there are cases and points and United now are hiring some data analysts at the minute uh, to help them out with this. I think they're at second stage of interviews at the moment. And obviously United are a bit behind uh, the, the big teams per se. I, I, I know that Liverpool have Someone called uh, Ian Graham. He's the head of the scouting department, and he's absolutely essential to what Michael Edwards does at Liverpool. Uh, as a result, obviously they've they've had some stellar signings in the last couple of seasons. Brendan Rodgers brought in someone with from Celtic. His name evades me. Um, Mladen, yeah, Mladen Somas, and he's also someone that's really helping out with not just the uh, analysis of the players they want to bring in, but the actual analysis of the players themselves. There's going to be a transition towards more a more data-driven situation. Um, but my issue is not the data itself, but how the data is used. Data is always numbers, and it depends on how much of your eggs you're putting in, in that data numbers basket, really. So I think the more teams are educated about how to use those numbers, the better it's going to be for, for football going forward. Uh, obviously, I don't know if you've heard, Liverpool have a, um, a throwing coach. That's that's how into stats and into data they are because any 1-2% extra that they can get, they're attempting to do that. But there's a difference between knowing yeah. how to use the stat and going overdrive. I think in the case of the throwing coach, it was a very controversial story because... He had a lot of people, especially older people, older um, former players that were sort of laughing about his appointment. But then the stats showed that Liverpool actually improved significantly in terms of how they did after throw-ins, after hiring the coach. So perhaps paying attention to the numbers is something that, that really should be done. Um, you talked about United in the transfer market. Uh, I also just remembered after you mentioned them that when Ole initially came in and they went on a very good run, there were a lot of people that were looking at the statistics. Again, very similar to Nyamri, they were saying that 
The performances aren't reflective of the results. Eventually, United are going to to stop getting the results because the underlying statistics are showing that they're not performing as well. And eventually, that's exactly what happened. You also mentioned Liverpool and Michael Edwards and his team, and I I think you know that that's perhaps one of the largest cases of how statistics really can work in your favor because. Um, Klopp wasn't initially convinced on signing Salah and then I think it was Michael Edwards that really pushed him to do it and uh, he's become a Liverpool legend so so I guess yeah um, the right usage of statistics can can make a huge difference absolutely and anyone that, that doesn't say that is fair enough but when when people use stats wrong, uh, that is that's where people can make hundreds of millions of pounds worth of errors. Um, we, we we've seen West Ham's recruitment in the last couple of years and what they've been doing, and the, the way they analyze data at the moment is is very. <sighs> the right word is let's just go with basic. It's very basic. Um, yeah. And. The fact that they spent crazy amounts of money on the likes of Felipe Anderson or Sebastian Alaris. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, an indicator of that, really. Um, so hopefully this COVID situation will really help teams not just go out and buy an end product, but buy someone that has potential and gamble on them and develop them in the right way and look at stats to help them improve and grow because as soon as you bring in some uh, normality into the transfer market and it, you don't go out and buy a finished product for 50 to 50, 60 odd million then you're going to start finding potential solutions I mean Newcastle for a while wanted to buy a centre mid and then they found um, Matty Longstaff and, and, and Sean Longstaff and they developed them so Longstaff number one was last season and they wanted to buy a centre mid and didn't end up buying one and this season they, they, they got Matty as well so you, you you always have a solution whether that's in your academy whether that's uh, on a low budget I mean Matteo Guendouzi was picked up from, from the second division in, in France so he walked into that team and for the first couple of months at least he, he was one of Arsenal's best players yeah so I think that that should be a lesson for, for teams going forward. Hopefully we, we see some sanity in the future. Uh, just to uh, wrap up this uh, pod, uh, United's Europa League opponents, uh, LASK, uh, they were caught in quite a pickle, actually. Um, two people uh, broke into the training ground and installed the video surveillance cameras overnight. And... They, they were recording um, Lask's training sessions. Now, what was special or ironic about those sessions is they were training as a full team as opposed to adhering to social distancing rules and the guidelines set out by the government. Uh, they basically restricted training to small groups of players, so only three players and they have to be two meters apart. But someone broke in videotaped them all and they leaked it to the Ministry of Sport in Austria. In general they have other clubs whether that's Austria Vienna or that's Red Bull Salzburg all of them have said that the integrity of the league is now called into question and 
the fact that Lask have been training as a whole unit, it tarnishes the integrity of the game. So it depends on who you talk to, but we could be looking at a potential points fine, points deduction out of this. And Lask have uh, said they've been victims of industrial espionage. <laughs> yes, indeed. How very interesting. The, they they haven't really realised uh, the fact that they're only in trouble because they were doing something wrong in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, perhaps a moment of self-reflection needed for a lot of us. Um, anyway, I guess we'll end it over there. Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to everyone that's listening. If you have any questions or feedback in general, you can drop us a tweet or slide into our DMs on Twitter at trappedoffpod, that's at trappedoffpod, or you can send us an email at trappedoffsidepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye.